Thank you. You can have a seat. And again, it is such an honor to be able to introduce our final session speaker. And um, Brian Johnson is a new name for many of you, but he is a friend of Casey and I's. And when we were talking in the back room, he reminded me I was, uh, we were talking about how I was going to introduce him. And we were talking about some of the things in ministry we've done together. He reminded me, it's like, well, I did help you that one time when you were moving back from Africa. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. And we hadn't even met yet. I was thinking, you know, it's a good friend that will help you move, but it's a great friend who doesn't even know you yet that will help you move. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Brian is an incredible worship leader. But a few years ago, he and his wife, Kristen, uh, took a huge leap of faith to help start KC Underground, of which he is one of their directors, and it is one of the leading missional movements in, um, in the United States. And I'm going to let you, I mean, if, if I am telling you about it, I think it's one of the greatest things in the world, but he is going to tell you about it, and he is much more modest than I am about it, but I am going to leave that to him to, exp to tell you about. But he has five children which I know is great, but I do want to tell you that three of them are triplets. So, yeah, yep, give them some grace. One of them, and he, this is a sacrifice, one of them, it's their birthday today. So he is here on his son's birthday. His wife is getting to spend the day with them. And when we were thinking about who to get to speak into thriving for our city, who better than someone who is on one of the leading movements of a missional movement than Brian Johnson. And when I told him that's what I'm going to say, he goes, oh, is that a question? I could give you a list. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it is an honor to welcome Brian Johnson to Thrive 2023. And when he comes to the stage, I hope that you will give him a very warm welcome. Hey. Well, good afternoon. Um, I, when she said that we have triplets, I thought, I don't, there's like zero credit to me on this. Um, my wife is, uh, man, a saint, and I'll bring them up later on. Um, I just want to say thank you for letting me be here to start off with. It's a privilege to be here. Also, I get really nervous, so if you see me shaking, that's normal. Um, and I just want to start with just a couple minutes uh, to say to you from my heart that I have this deep conviction uh, that the voice of women should be elevated. Um, it's something that our family holds dear, and we have values that uh, shape us in that way. And so for, for me to stand here, I want you to know that, like, I don't take this lightly. This is a moment for me that normally I would go, absolutely not. I, this is not the place for me to speak. I would rather stand behind Amy and Dr. Walker and all of that. So just know that from my heart, like this is a spot for me of, um, I take it seriously. And I appreciate you allowing me just to take a few moments at the end of your time together to share from my heart about what we get to do. Um, and I just hope that you'll hear that and trust my heart in that. So uh, you have already heard from two amazing leaders about thriving for your family thriving in your neighborhood. And I think those two ideas 
are tied deeply into where we're going for thriving for the sake of a city. Uh, and when I first started preparing for this today, I had so many thoughts that were flowing. Um, in fact, I had this whole chunk of things that were written down. And that's a, another little caveat. Everything's sort of written down. You can start praying now that I won't deviate from what is written because <laughs> it will take a lot longer to get through if I do that. So if I'm looking down, it's just so that we can stay on track and honor your time. <laughs> Uh, but when I first started preparing this, I had this huge chunk of ideas written, and I felt overwhelmed by all that was there. And I was like, I just don't feel like this is the direction, Jesus, that you're sending us. And, and I said, this idea feels so big to talk about thriving for the sake of the city. And I remember where I was sitting, and Jesus said, it is. And I was like, is that it? <laughs> Can you please give me any more than that? Um, and so I just spent some time in prayer, and I have been praying over you and over this time together. In fact, there's a group of guys that I hang with that I just texted them, and I said, I, I hope that you'll be praying for this time today. Uh, just that I'll stand in a posture of repentance for, um, for us as men that have often, too often silenced your voice and not been at, with the heart of God on that, uh, but also in a place of humility as we go through this. So when I get into this idea of thriving for the sake of a city. And again, I, I, I'm excited about this because it's what I get to do now. It's a part of who we are as the Kansas City Underground. We're a network of disciple makers and micro churches that exist all around the Kansas City area. And this is our mission. It's to see our city filled with the beauty, the justice, and the good news of Jesus. And that's a phrase that we repeat over and over. We long to see our city filled with the beauty, the justice, and the good news of Jesus. And that's the phrase uh, that helps us understand this idea of gospel saturation. And when we say gospel saturation, our definition for that is when every woman, every man, every girl, every boy would have repeated opportunities to see, hear, experience, and respond to the gospel. And we believe that we'll see this reality when we see a missionary on every street and a microchurch in every network of relationships. And that's not a three-year, a five-year, or a ten-year vision. It's something that we're given the rest of our lives to. And we say it's a 40-year dream to see our city and the surrounding area saturated with the beauty, the justice, and the good news of Jesus. It's not some colonialist, Christian nationalist idea uh, where we take over and everyone has to believe what we believe. It's so much richer than that. Uh, this dream of seeing Kansas City saturated with the gospel is, is rooted and grounded in Scripture. I want to take you first to this passage in Ephesians uh, at the end of chapter 1 where it says these words that God placed all things under the authority of Christ and made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So as followers of Jesus, right, we believe that there is this day coming. One day, there is a day coming when Jesus will return, when heaven will meet earth, when death, disease, every tear, every heartache, every broken place will be made whole. All things will be well. All manner of things will be well. And Jesus will sit on his throne, right? And Revelation says that there will be no need for the sun or the moon because the sun, the Lamb of God, will give it its light. And someday, sometimes in light of longing for that day that is out there, 
We get caught up in thinking that we're only treading water here and now, just waiting for this sweet by and by, right? We're longing for that day, but Jesus doesn't dangle this vision out there for us in hopes that one day it will happen. According to Paul, Jesus is already beginning to fill everything in every way. He says all things are placed under the authority of Christ. He's the head over all things for the benefit of the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I want to start there. We are his body. Not one of us or two of us. All of us together. We are his body. And Paul is saying we're the fullness of Jesus here and now who is already beginning to fill everything in every way. Collectively, we are the full representation of Christ in this world. So I like to say it this way. The question is not will Jesus fill everything in every way. The question is, will we join him as we have been invited to already here and now in this moment as he fills everything in every way? Will we purpose to be a gospel presence, a gospel demonstration, and a gospel proclamation? That's the the holistic idea of a gospel, that it's present, that it's demonstrated, and that it's also proclaimed. And you'll hear those phrases as I go on. But we've been invited to be a gospel presence in our homes. We've been invited to be a gospel presence in our neighborhoods where we live and where we work. We've been invited to demonstrate the gospel when we bring restoration to broken places and when we bring light into dark places. And we get to be the gospel proclamation when we open our mouths and proclaim like Jesus did that the kingdom of God is near. It's coming to you. So I want to give you a picture of how we would translate this idea of gospel saturation for a modern context. If you would imagine Kansas City... Uh, Leavenworth, Lansing, wherever you live as an aquarium like this. Sorry it's angled this way, but if you guys could see, there's like a skyline of Kansas City in there. So if you can imagine your city is like this aquarium, gospel saturation happens when the aquarium is full. And every square inch of this is filled with water. And what happens when that is a reality is there there isn't one square inch that isn't saturated by the fullness of that water. Like if there were like the rocks in the bottom and that weird little castle and the, you know, like the scuba diving man, right? Like every square inch is saturated with the gospel and the water is seeping into the nooks and crannies, every crack and every crevice. Everything is touched by the gospel and there is nothing that is unaffected by it. Can you imagine a city where the rising water is beauty, justice, and good news. Where slowly, bit by bit, the the narrative is being rewritten. What does Jesus' beauty look like? Galatians 5 is probably the best place to describe it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of this Jesus has without measure. It's in perfection without blemish or flaw. And Jesus wants to see all of our city saturated with beauty, justice, good news, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that. What does Jesus' justice look like? Justice in the Bible is not primarily retributive justice. It's mostly about restorative justice. It has elements of retributive justice throughout. But if we look at the grand arc of the narrative of Scripture, it's mostly about God restoring things. God's justice is fundamentally a restoring and renewing kind of justice. Knowing this, the church is also called to practice restorative justice and to move society in the same direction. 
Where there's isolation, we bring community because our God is divine community. Where there's poverty, we bring abundance because our God is a God of abundance and generosity. Where there's violence, we bring peacemaking because our God is a God of peace. Where there's racism or misogyny, we bring equality and dignity because we are God's image and his image is stamped on us and he is a God that is fighting for equality and dignity. Where there's disease, we bring healing because our God is a healer. Restorative justice is about putting right what has gone wrong to protect the community and to restore its integrity and to put things in right relationship with God. Justice is satisfied by the restoration of peace and relationships. So beauty, justice, and good news. I'm going to talk more about the good news, so I'm not going to linger there right now. Uh, But the gospel we proclaim is really the encapsulation in words of the gospel that we live, that we're present in, and the gospel that we demonstrate. So we're going to come back to this passage in Ephesians in a bit. But I want to take a few minutes and look at the overarching narrative of Scripture. We're just going to walk back through this. Um, I said we ground everything we do in Ephesians 1, but truly all of Scripture is, is painting this story that, that God is going to fill everything in every way. So if you'll allow me, let's, let's do a real quick journey back through Scripture. You're probably very familiar with it, but maybe some of you here are not or have not heard a telling of it this way. In Genesis 1, God created us and he made the world as his temple. He placed humanity here as his image bearers, as his representatives to serve as co-creators and as priests. Creation was the overflow of the love, the joy, the generosity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One Hebrew word, one Hebrew word sums up the original intent of creation. It's the word shalom. Probably very familiar with this word. When we hear shalom, we often think of the word peace. And when we think of peace, we often think of no fighting. But shalom is far more uh, rich of an idea than than just uh, the end of hostilities. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga says, In the Bible, shalom means the universal flourishing of God, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's a bigger definition than an end of hostilities. Shalom is the universal flourishing of God. It's the way things ought to be. And the entire earth was a place of that universal flourishing of God, of wholeness and delight. And the story begins with peace between God and us, peace between us and creation, peace between us and us, and peace even in ourselves. But we know that's no longer the case, right? That's because in Genesis 3, we see humanity rebelled. Shalom was broken, which brought decay and death. And suddenly there is a breaking between God and us, between us and creation, between us and us, between us and ourselves. And we lose that universal flourishing. But God does not end the story there, and he is not done with his people. He immediately moves in and begins to pursue them. And we have this this picture of God stepping into that place and saying, where are you? That's not a question of physical location. 
God knew where they were. It's a, it's a question of hiddenness. Something has been broken between us. Where are you? We had intimacy. We had things as they ought to be, and it's no longer that way. But God moves toward his people, and he doesn't abandon us at this moment. He begins a plan of redemption by creating a covenant community. And through Abraham, God creates a nation of people who are invited to join him in blessing and redeeming all nations and all things. So in Genesis 12, we read these words. Leave your country, your kindred, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham and his family were not to be a cul-de-sac of blessing. It wasn't, I'm going to bless you, hang on to it. It was, I'm going to bless you and through you, we are going to make things as they ought to be again. We are going to bring shalom back to the earth. However, the people of Israel are really bad at this. And so you have this long Old Testament narrative of like, we're with you, God. Not anymore. (laughs) And then he does something and they, we're back because it was really bad when we weren't with you. And then things are good, and then they're out again. And then we just see this cycle over and over, right? But the people of Israel, even though they can't hold that covenant, God did not change his mind about them. God did not change his mind about his purpose and his plan for these people. That original covenant in Genesis 12 remained the same. And so we get to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, or 29 verse 4, and we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the shalom of the city to which I have sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. That's the original word that's in that text. Pray for the shalom of the city. When it finds its shalom, you will find your shalom. Now we know that the Israelites are in Babylon because they had turned away from the Lord. It's absolutely a part of their disobedience. And so we can hear that phrase, to the exiles that I have sent into exile, uh, from a negative point of view, because this is a bad moment for them. Uh, But... We can also hear this from a positive standpoint. What if God, our Father and His great understanding of how all things were moving together, sent them with a purpose to see that things became the way they ought to be? And that's the rest of what this short little passage is telling us. The passage is actually only a reiteration of Genesis 12. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm sending you into exile. Bless this place that I am sending you. you. You broke covenant. There's a consequence for that. But in your going, bring blessing to this place. God is reminding them that even in captivity, that original command remains. Breathe life and shalom into this new place. God said, build houses. Don't rent. Set foundations. That matters. There's an expectation of a length of time that they're going to stay there. He said, plant gardens and eat their produce. That's like at least a growing season. But there's also something in that sustaining life that they're bringing with food. Like, don't just see food. 
There's a command in this of plant gardens and eat their produce. How beautiful is a garden? What does it reflect? The creative power of God. As he goes on, he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. We're talking at least nine months <laughs> at a bare minimum on this one. But I think we're already hearing a few years in this command. But the Lord is not finished with them in that. He expects them to stay. He says that they may have sons and daughters. We're talking decades and I think generationally here. Not only does he expect them to be there for a while, he says, do not decrease multiply. What's the very first command in scripture? Be fruitful and multiply. God doesn't change his commands. They're still there for them because in this moment it's breathe life into this new place. Seek the shalom of the city, my universal flourishing. If you're there, just be good at it. (laughs) Be fruitful and multiply. Seek the shalom of this place. Breathe life into it. Most Important is that word, seek shalom. In captivity, there would be this natural inclination to hate these people, to rebel, to fight against them. But God says your identity never changed. How foundational is this passage in the middle sort of of the big book of what God is doing? If we continue in the narrative, we see that the prophets, this big chunk of the Old Testament, they're proclaiming that God will send a Messiah to rescue Israel. God had already sort of prophesied that in Genesis 3, but like these guys are reiterating it. And they describe this future world where shalom is restored between God, humanity, between us and all of creation. And we see this fully realized in the person of Jesus. And how does he come? He doesn't come as royalty. He doesn't come demanding He comes as one of the people to the backwaters of the Roman Empire. And he stays hidden for 30 years. He learns the stories and the songs and the festivals of the people in the place that he's been sent to. He doesn't assume what their stories and their language and their songs and their rhythms and their ways are like. He grows up and learns them. You want to talk about planting roots. 30 years learning a craft. And then he enters into his ministry and he breathes life into the people in the place that he's sent to, right? Like his first miracle is really good wine for really drunk people. <laughs> like if that doesn't mess with your theology or at least your practical expression of your theology, like Jesus was okay with it in that moment. He calls Matthew to follow him. He says, come follow me. What do they do first? That night, they throw a party at Matthew's house. Jesus was known as a glutton and a drunk for a reason. Not because he was drunk, but because he was always apparently at a party. I, I will say this. This is not a notice. I'm deviating. I don't think Jesus was in a corner with like a glass of milk. Like these people wanted to be around him. And the text describes the people that he hung out with as disreputable sinners. He eats with Zacchaeus, who likely had no friends or family. He healed lepers. He cast out demons. He set people free from oppression. He is restoring shalom with his life. He tells the 12 and the 72, go to the next towns and villages where I'm about to go. You know what he tells them? 
proclaim the kingdom, cast out demons, and heal the sick. And these people just did it. Like this isn't, hey, hold the door for them when they walk. Like (laughs) this is a hard assignment. How do we know they did it? Because they come back at the end of that passage and they go, you're not going to believe this. The demons listened to us and obeyed. These people were so with Jesus that when he told them to go do this really hard thing, they're like, okay, give that a shot. But what are they doing? They're bringing shalom and life into the cities that he's about to come to and do the same thing. And I think that that command is for us as well. Jesus was a gospel presence everywhere he went because he was the fulfillment of the promise that God was going to restore all things. Jesus demonstrated the good news by bringing beauty and justice with his life and miracles. Jesus proclaimed the good news. Ooh, there's a countdown timer. I didn't see that. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I just got really distracted by that. Um, (laughs) I got lost. Uh, Before before Jesus was... Before Jesus, Israel was designed to be this new community that God would use to bless the world. Israel missed the mark. But before his ascension, Jesus created a new community called the church for this purpose. And we are all invited to participate, every single one of us. The church exists for the universal mission of making disciples of all nations and manifesting the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Like I think when Jesus prayed that, he literally meant whatever's happening up there, let it come down here right now. So this passage that we read in Ephesians earlier is making this audacious claim that Jesus is now physically present on earth through this new community called the church. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We sing that kind of stuff all the time. But like it is true. That's reality. We're the representation, the fullness of him who's filling everything in every way. This is the story we're in, and I, like, I want you to hear this phrase. You are invited to be shalom bringers. Like, I adopt that identity. I'm a shalom bringer. We have been invited to bring the universal flourishing of God the way things ought to be to this world. Just show of hands, this is participatory time. Does that feel overwhelming to anybody? For those of you that are like me, this feels super overwhelming. Sometimes I drive around the city and I get lost on purpose so I can remember how big it is. So I can feel tiny and that I need Jesus to see this realized through us. If Ephesians 1 is what God is going to do, fill everything in every way, Ephesians 2 is how he's going to do it. Here's where it like gets less discouraging and more encouraging, I hope. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the good things he planned for us long ago. I am a masterpiece, and you might not think so. And that's okay, because Jesus does, and sometimes my wife does. You are a masterpiece. And if you don't believe that, please step into it. And there may be moments where the enemy is attacking you. When I say moments, I mean like 24-7, that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, that God can't use you. But this passage tells us that we are a masterpiece. And that's the way he sees us. He doesn't see us any other way than that we are his masterpiece. And he's created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works 
that he planned for us long ago. I was going to go through some passages to tell you that, like, this is Paul's main theme that we went from old to new. Like, this is a central text and idea of Scripture. I'm not going to go through those. But own that. And just like it was for Abraham and his family, it's true for us who have stepped into this new covenant with Jesus. We have not been made new for nothing. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And the final part of Ephesians 2.10 says that we have this set body of good works that he's planned in advance for us to do. And here's the thing. He will never force you to step into that set body of good works. He will never command you to do it. It is always an invitation, but it's always into a more fulfilling life. Every time one of God's people embraces this truth that they're a masterpiece mission, a little bit of water is added into the fulfilling of Jesus in a city. Every time one of us chooses to join him in that set body of good works, the water rises just a little bit more. Every time that we move with Jesus into justice-oriented things, the water level rises. Every time we open our mouth and proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, the water level is rising. I asked you earlier if it felt overwhelming when we look at this image of gospel saturation. And and I've only put a small amount of water in there. And there's like, there's so far to go. Like the bottom is not even wet yet. The truth is it's always only a collection of a multitude of masterpiece missions joining together in a city. The primary place that we feel our set body of good works as a family and how that gets realized is in our neighborhood. But it starts in our family. I told you all this is tied together. If the gospel is not informing us first, it can never spill out into a neighborhood. And if it can't inform us and spill out into a neighborhood, it'll never transform a neighborhood that'll transform another neighborhood. And when we moved in, we decided that we would get to know the names and the stories of as many people as possible. We would learn about the rhythms and the festivals of Kansas City. We would learn the city and we would put down roots. And we had these little dinners that we would throw or we'd invite people over. And sometimes it was, a, it was just a couple. And sometimes like it was a cul-de-sac party where 90 people showed up. I love that. A lot of people don't. That's cool because you don't have to love the things that I love. I have to step into my masterpiece mission. You have to step into yours. And as we prayed for people and listened to their stories and shared meals, celebrated together and served our neighbors in meaningful ways, and as we discipled our own children at the breakfast table and, then, and along the road and uh, along the way and at nighttime, it wasn't just, a, that was just the vision of, uh, anyway, it's more than a breakfast table. We have often had the opportunity to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel because we're a gospel presence. So I want to tell you a few stories of just what that looks like for us. Um, we got to the point where because of our gospel presence and our, our desire to move towards these neighbors and speak Jesus, I remember maybe a year and a half in, the neighbor behind me, he texted me and he said, hey, I just want you to know that we just lost our first child. Will you pray for us? Not a lot to say in that moment. But because we're a gospel presence, he knew where good news was. I think about another neighbor that at the end of my driveway said, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. 
And we got to pray together there. I meet with a group of guys every week for like the last five years. I invite the neighborhood guys over and I tell them, hey, we're going to talk about what it means to be a good human, a good husband, and a good father. And we just were asking questions like, how do we shape that, you know? And so I was telling these guys at one point, I said, hey, I just read this book about brain science and how we receive uh, words and how it passes through our right brain and then goes to our left. And it's super interesting to me um, because we mostly only like yell at our kids, which is just left brain stuff. It's not right brain attachment stuff, which is, if you want to read about it, The Other Half of Church is a great book. Which talks Anyway, it's great. There's a parenting tip in there. Instead of pointing your finger at your kid and yelling at them, which because of the frontal cortex and all those things, they're not receiving it. It's just shutting down. They're not making new neural pathways. Try things like, hey, is that who we are? This is a simple little phrase. And what it did was it slowed me down. And it also helped them understand what's our family identity? Who are we? You know what it really did, though? We just don't yell as much in our house anymore. I have five kids. There's a lot of yelling, but what I mean is, like, <laughs> I'm not yelling as much. So I'm telling these guys this story, and, like, a, two months later, one of those guys goes, hey, man, I've been doing that thing where I've been asking, is this who we are? And I'm not yelling at my kids as much anymore. And in that moment, I was like, I think that's the beauty and justice of Jesus. Because we're going to have, like, a generation of kids in this neighborhood that... Like their dads didn't yell at them. And they were attaching more. And maybe they won't do that for their kids. And there's like this little yeast in the dough that Jesus is talking about. Because if it changes my home, then it could change a neighborhood, then it can go further. I was telling these same guys a, a couple of weeks after that, I was like, hey, I read this thing where like if you hug somebody for six seconds, there's like a little dopamine hit that happens do you know this I didn't I also didn't know how long six seconds was this is about a second this is about a second this is about a second so I'm like I'm hugging my kids going one two <laughs> and at, sure enough six seconds in you just feel their body go uh, they just like fall into you. And so I was, sorry, I'm a crier, by the way. I should have told you that up front. So these guys were like telling me, um, uh, like the next day, he's like, dude, I did that thing. And sure enough, six seconds in, they just fell into my arms. Um, and it's just that yeast in the dough where the water is rising. And man, can I just tell you a few more stories? I think about Cilicia. And Corey McElvain, who lead a network of students that are joining Jesus in disciple-making in 16 of the 88 area high schools in Kansas City. And that's shalom among high school students in Kansas City. And I think about James, who is daily texting his community as they work their way out of addiction into full recovery. And that's shalom among addicts. And Rick and Alice... They're working with the houseless and addicts at Washington Square Park in Kansas City. And so that's shalom among the houseless in Kansas City. I think about Amy who's supporting women who have been abused or who are rebuilding their lives post-incarceration. So that's shalom among women affected by abuse and addiction. 
I think about my dad who's helping men inside Lansing Prison. Find redemption and healing in Jesus, teaching them to lead others to do the same. So that's shalom among the currently incarcerated. John and Alicia spend time weekly with their friends in a nursing home. Shalom among the elderly who are often lonely and forgotten. Casey is a young, a young man who's a friend of mine now. He would tell you that he's a slow processor. Appreciate the tissues. <laughs> I came up with one. <laughs> Casey spends time with his brother. <laughs> Casey's brother has pretty severe autism. Casey believes he has a masterpiece mission. And Casey goes every week and does a Bible study with these guys and these girls at this place for adults with disabilities. And then they have a dance party to worship music. <laughs> a shalom among the voiceless with disabilities. I think about my mama. This is probably going to take longer. Whew. She was diagnosed with Parkinson's a year ago. This woman led me to Jesus. This woman taught Sunday school and then went to the hospital to have me. <laughs> I was in church the day I was born. <laughs> And she, she goes to a gym and she works out with other people that have Parkinson's and she represents Jesus in this place. And she tries to find every way to proclaim his name because she believes that's a part of her story and her masterpiece mission. I was struggling to tell you this part of the story, but I'm going to tell you real quick. No, I'm going to come back. In every one of these stories, one of Jesus' beloved daughters or sons, children that he calls masterpieces, they have explored and discovered their one-of-a-kind calling and begun to live into it. Where are you supposed to build a house and live in it? Where are you supposed to be planting gardens? What does it mean to have spiritual sons and daughters to live as a spiritual mother and to see those daughters and sons become spiritual mothers and fathers to spiritual sons and daughters? What are those broken places that keep you awake at night? The things where, like, your soul goes, as long as I'm taking breath, this should be fixed. It is not right that this broken place doesn't look like the kingdom of God. What are the things that move you in that way? What doesn't look like the kingdom of God in your world that Jesus is giving you authority to work into so that it looks like the kingdom of God? 
I can't answer those for you, but it's a journey that we take. And you shouldn't do it alone. So this is it. This is the last little story. This is just this morning. Um, we have triplets. They were born at 28 weeks. So for two months, we did the whole, I hope they make it. So there's a lot of trauma for me in that experience. And maybe you've been there. And for about seven years now, I know that Jesus has been saying, go back to the hospital and be present in that place. But I'm afraid. But this morning when I woke up, I haven't thought about that in months. This morning when I woke up, Jesus said, it's time to figure out how to go back. So I had this long text written to a doctor friend of mine, and I was like, I'm about to send it. And I was like, I deleted it. Because I was like, man, maybe it's not time. <laughs> and then I just sent her another text. And I was like, hey, do you know anybody? <laughs> um, and I thought, that, like, it's that little step to begin a journey that might also be a part of my masterpiece mission because it's such an important part of our story. So as I end, I just want to, I'm not going to read the rest of that. I'm, I'm going to tell you just about a, a, an image I've had over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing uh, to come and be a part of this and knew that I would use this massive thing. Um, I just had this vision of like a line of you just walking up and going like, I know what mine is. I'm going to pour my water in. And I just want to give you a minute to sit with Jesus and ask him, like, is there something that's like, this is my story, and this is how I'm supposed to join you in disciple making. Yes, but, but bringing beauty and justice and good news. Because, like, when we talk about thriving for the city, it's like Jesus wants the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we can't do this alone. We're supposed to do it collectively in community because we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And it's not just that I want you to think of what it is, but I want you to think of a very simple step you could take. For, for me, it was just a text message. I don't know how long it'll take me to figure out what the actual next step is, but it was like, that was hard. What is that one step? And then who's one person you can bring with you? Because when we all begin to thrive in our souls, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, the collective water is going to slowly rise. Amen? Father, I just thank you for uh, the space to be present. I thank you that there are a lot of tissues around. I thank you, Jesus, that you have fully invited us to participate with you. Oh, you're going to do this? All right. Hey, let me say this. Jesus, uh, we shouldn't have pressure on us to do this. He's inviting you. He's not commanding. He's not forcing. 
and you may not know it yet. You may need to spend some time with somebody. You may need to spend some time examining your own story. God, I long. I long for your people to be set free and to wake up to their masterpiece missions. And they don't have to be huge. It can be my masterpiece mission is to raise these five kids to love you. So Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, you tune our ears to what your voice sounds like so that we can listen. And when you speak, we can move and respond in obedience. Amen. If that resonated with you and you would like to come pour water in this as a response to what you've just heard, I invite you to do that as Jessica and the band lead us in the next song.